We're in Deuteronomy chapter 14 this morning, continuing in our series, True Wealth. Would you turn there with me? Deuteronomy chapter 14, we've got ushers with Bibles that can pass them to you if you'd like a Bible in your hands. Last week, you know, we started stepping into this framework of Fully Devoted by going into this series, True Wealth. And through this series and, and, and through, you know, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about money. This is the first time that we've done so in 12 plus years of our history as a church community. So I gave a number of disclaimers as we started this series last week about, you know, our accountability structures, you know, about our pay scale. Uh, you know, I talked a lot about that as we set up this discussion. So if you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you, go back, listen to the podcast, go to YouTube. Listen to all that information because it helps frame the study that we're going into. You know, I don't want to give a public service announcement every week for, hey, just so you know, you know, no one's getting rich off this and we're not asking for commitments and there's no bait and switch, but I'm essentially doing that a second week in a row because I realize that there are people who come once a month, twice a month, three times a month, you miss, you show up, you go, well, we're talking about money and, huh, what is this about? What's changed about this community? So... Again, just to let you know, all of that is on the first week, and I want to remind you that this series is about us going into the truth of God's Word and taking those truths into prayer and seeing how God would lead us as individuals. I'm not going to be checking your work, all right? It's between you and the Lord where He leads. But what did we hear in God's Word last week? Well, Jesus told us that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and money. He says either you're going to love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one or despise the other. So our allegiance can't go in both directions. Now, what does it mean for us to actually respond to that? Well, we got to look within. we got to look at our own lives. You know, the Bible says those who store up for themselves, those who are serving the master of money, they are a fool. But those who are generous... Rich in good deeds and willing to share, they are laying hold of the life that is truly life. They are discovering what true wealth is all about. So we know we can't hoard. That was clear enough last week. But what does it mean to be generous and willing to share? How much are we supposed to share? And where is it supposed to go? As I mentioned last week, the evangelical gold standard for giving in the church in the modern world is the tithe, 10%. And that is a very simple principle. I understand why it's so widespread. It's simple, it's clear, and it sure would fund the ministry if everyone actually applied it. But is it the biblical standard for us as Christians today, giving 10% of our income? Let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 14. We're going to begin by reading in verse 22. This is where the tithe is mentioned and instituted as a law and command for God's people in the Old Testament. Let's see what the tithe really was. Verse 22, chapter 14, Deuteronomy. It's on the screens. God commands the Israelites, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. 
But if that place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, basically, you've had a massive harvest. You're killing it. You've got tons of livestock and you can't possibly transport it across the lands. Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Exchange it again for cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Let's pause there for just a moment. Again, what are we talking about? We're talking about the tithe, what it is and why it was instituted in ancient Israel. And what, if any, bearing this law has upon our own giving, our own use and stewardship of our funds? Well, the tithe literally means it's defined here as one-tenth. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, what we just read, the Israelites were commanded to bring a tenth of all their resources or income. That was their harvest. That was of their livestock. They're to bring it to the temple. And if it was a big harvest, like I said, a lot of stuff, they were supposed to exchange that for money, they'd make the journey, then they'd exchange the money for some, you know, practical real goods, and that is what they would offer at the temple. Now, what was the purpose, the reason for this portion being dedicated to God? Well, we have a spiritual practice that is named first here, a spiritual motivation and reason. Verse 23, bring the tithe, God says, so you may learn to revere the Lord always. Give this one-tenth on an annual, a seasonal basis, so you may learn to revere the Lord always. Meaning, as you give, it will train your heart to recognize God beyond and above the material that you see in front of you. It's going to train your heart. It's going to form your heart as you engage in this practice, in this action of setting this one-tenth aside. So, you know, this is, this is a really important thing for us to realize, that a lot of times our heart drives our actions. But do you understand our actions can also reinform and form our hearts? Let me illustrate this with another aspect of life. I am by nature an introvert. And I realize many of you are judging me right now, right? I'm an introvert, and I think introverts are misunderstood. All the introverts out there, you're like, yeah, finally somebody's, you know, vindicating me. You know, people think as an introvert, I don't like you. Like, I don't like people. I don't like you, and that's what makes me an introvert. But we're misunderstood as introverts. It's not that I don't like you. It's that we as introverts, we're scared of you. I like you just fine, but I'm scared of you. No, I'm kidding to a certain degree, but I'm not to another degree because for introverts, it's just very challenging. It's very draining to be in social interactions. That doesn't mean they don't want to be around people. I mean, this is community. This is like the meaning of life is relationships and love and all that. So introverts, as much as extroverts, want to be around people. But when they're around people, it just takes more resources from within. They feel more sapped. 
So the instinct of a lot of introverts is to avoid social settings, is to avoid community, because that's the place that they're going to get sad. But that's the worst thing for an introvert, because the longer they don't act and step into community, the harder it is for them and the more uncomfortable it is when they finally do get into social situations. The solution for an introvert is to do the opposite of what their instincts tell them. They need community. They need to step into social situations. And I'll tell you guys this. As a pastor, I have no ability to avoid people. My entire job involves people, unless I'm going to be just a horrible pastor. So I have been forced for 15 years to go against my natural inclinations. And I can tell you the inner introvert has been crushed. Absolutely crushed. There's barely anything left of that individual because my actions have led and formed my heart. So it would be with the tithe. The Israelites needed their heart to understand it isn't just them sowing and tending to the fields and harvesting. This world is God's world. The energy that's in their arms performing these tasks is the energy that God has given them. The land is God's land. The, the forces that bring the abundance out of the ground are, are ruled by God. So they needed to believe that. And sure, they could believe that. They could say they believe that. But by acting on it, by giving that 10%, by offering it to the Lord, their heart was being formed to truly believe it, to truly believe it from the inside out. The tithe also had what we might call a practical use, though it is of no less spiritual consequence. Verse 29 says it funded the ministry of the Levites and served as provision for others who could not provide for themselves. That is the fatherless, orphans, the widows, and also strangers, foreigners in the land that could be considered immigrants or refugees today. Now, why was it the Levites were grouped in with those who could not provide for themselves, like the fatherless and the widow. Because when God took the 12 tribes of Israel, that is the 12 sons of Israel and their descendants and these family lines, he broke up the promised land into these different land allotments. And he gave to each tribe a certain amount of land that they would tend to, that they'd get their income from and resources. But to the sons of Levi, the Levites, the order of priests, he gave no land. He gave no inheritance. He gave no allotment. So essentially, they would be forced to continue on in this vocation of priests, serving the nation by teaching them and guiding them and building them up spiritually. All right. Well, this makes sense. If we want to draw a straight line from them to today, we have pastors and church staff who have no secondary employment, and we also distribute through the church to those in need. So 10% to the church, right? I mean, you can just see this is what the purpose was back in the Old Testament. Let's draw that straight line to the New Testament and then to our day to day. Look, we got the same dynamics going on. I guess we're supposed to give 10% of our income. But wait, hold your horses a little bit. The tithe wasn't all that they gave. They also gave something called the first fruits offering. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 4 to 5, the Israelites are told to also give the Levites the first fruits of their grain, their wine, their olive oil, and even the wool sheared from the sheep. 
In chapter 26, the description of the first fruits offering also includes the firstborn of all the livestock of the land. When you think about this, this is a costly additional sacrifice that the Israelites were supposed to bring regularly again to the Levites. I mean, imagine working that hard. You first got the harvest from last year, and then you're going to tend the ground and prepare it, and then you're going to plant the seed and sow it in the ground, and then you're going to wait for months on end. And then finally the first bit of the crop begins to come out of the ground. And what do you do with it? You give it away. You give it away. Oh, my gosh. That must have been a very difficult thing to release. But where that first bit went said something. It meant something. I told you guys this before, but my first paycheck as an adult man, as somebody in ministry, it went to buy half an engagement ring. I say half. You say, how did you buy half an engagement ring? The rest went on a credit card. Forgive me, spirit of Dave Ramsey, right? I I mean, I... I didn't follow the book of financial peace, but I did find another sort of peace. It was the best decision I ever made. But what did I do? That first paycheck went to that which was most important and most valuable to me. Bam, I'm going to buy that ring. I'm going to get married. And every year, the Israelites were making a statement about what was most valued and most important because the first and best of everything they got went straight to God. He wasn't going to be the afterthought or worthy of just their leftovers. He was going to be the priority. Now again, practically speaking, beyond its meaning that I've just talked about, the first fruits offering, like the tithe, went to fund the priesthood. So guys, are you taking notes? If you want to understand what they gave to understand what we should give in today's world, we've got the 10% in the tithe and also your first paycheck of the year. I mean, if we're going to make it equivalent here, you know, you've got to dedicate that first paycheck. Yeah, all right. So if if you're starting to do your calculations too, before you really get into this and you start thinking, how much money is that? As, As you're considering this, as you're all reaching for your calculators and preparing your plans of what you're going to give this next year, which I see no one doing, and no one did it first service either, I want to clarify something that's clarified in Leviticus chapter 27, which says the tithe was to be calculated after your first fruits gift, so that lump sum doesn't get to count toward your 10%. Gee whiz! Like, this is a lot of giving, right? But wait! I know you guys are stoked. I'm not finished. There were the festivals. There were seven key festivals throughout the year to designate important holidays and events that commemorated things that God had done in Israel's history. And would you believe it? They all involved giving. Golly! This is a lot. The tithe, the first fruits, seven festivals a year but we're not done. I've said nothing of the various offerings, nothing of the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, all in Leviticus 1 to 7. I've said nothing about the corners of the field that you were supposed to leave unharvested so that the poor could take from it anytime they wanted. I've said nothing about David and the special building project of the temple that would be multi-generational and be a major cost to the Israelite nation. So you guys thought taxes were bad in California. 
Now we know why in Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites emigrated to Texas. And it was called the Texodus. No, come on. The first service liked that. Don't give me a sigh. Come on, that was an actual thing during COVID. We did have, among Christians, the Texodus, all right? And I don't know if anyone's ever said that, but I, I'm, I'm going to coin that right now and ask for forgiveness later if you also said it. But when you add it all up, like we're adding it all up this morning, it becomes no surprise when you understand from Israel's history that so often they failed to observe all of this. It is no surprise when you start adding up the cost of what was placed upon the Israelites, what was expected of them in terms of generosity, it's not a far leap to go, man, I get why they barely ever gave any of this. One such period of neglect occurred during the ministry of the prophet Haggai. Let's turn to Haggai chapter 1. Apparently after returning from exile, God's people had left the temple in ruins. While they all watched the ancient equivalent of HGTV and dressed up their own homes. That's essentially what's going to be said here. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. The verses will be on the screens. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has yet not come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? I mean, you can think about, uh, I don't know, shiplap. I don't know what they're doing. They're doing something fancy. Um, the, the paneled houses, ooh, you know, that, but that was the thing. And uh, God's house remains a ruin. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Even after the people received this message of Haggai, this message of judgment that they neglected the house of the Lord to focus on their own houses. Even after they repented, they still failed to fund the priesthood. Nehemiah comes along in the following generation, and though the temple has been rebuilt, he makes some comment about what's going on in the tithes and offerings. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10. He comes into the land and says, I learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. So essentially, the Levites weren't collecting any of the tithes and offerings from the people, so they all found other employment. So who was guiding and leading the nation spiritually? God's house was, yet again, in a different way, being neglected. So both Haggai and Nehemiah understood that if the Israelites would not acknowledge God as the source of their provision, 
as the source of their flourishing, then they would no longer flourish as a people. And if they practically failed to fund the priesthood, and all the Levites just ended up taking other jobs, who would be left to guide and to form the culture and nation from a spiritual perspective? It was a really simple, practical problem, the funding of the priesthood, but it had major spiritual consequences for them personally and for them as a whole nation. Seems like such a small thing, the funding of the priesthood, but it had far-reaching implications. You know, this is the way it is with our life. We can think about things from a real practical perspective. Oh, you know, it's just this little thing. And we don't think about the implications. To illustrate this, I've been reading a book about a, a new treatment. And this new treatment, it's a simple thing, but it can have these massive implications. I'm going to quote this from the book I'm reading about this new treatment. It enhances your memory. It makes you more creative. It makes you look more attractive. And now Orange County is listening. It keeps you slim and lowers food cravings. It protects you from cancer and dementia. It wards off colds and the flu. It lowers your risk of heart attack and stroke, not to mention diabetes. You'll even feel happier, less depressed, and less anxious. What is this new treatment? What is this new practice? Essential oils? No, no. I like lavender as much as the next guy. It's sleep. I'm reading a book on sleep. And sleep is just a simple little thing. It's this practical little thing in our life, right? But it has all these massive unseen implications that have ripple effects throughout our entire life. And right now, none of you are thinking about money any longer. You're just thinking about sleep, and that's the cause of all your problems, and now you're diagnosing yourself. Don't go there, okay? This message is about, you know, what God wants us to do with our resources. But I'm illustrating the fact that you can think, oh, I just lost some sleep last night. You know, it's just this little practical thing, but it came with massive repercussions in all these different facets of your life. So also is another practice that when neglected, God's house, when it's neglected in our giving, when everyone just concerns themselves with their own house, there are major ramifications that work their way through, not just our own lives, but through our community as a whole, that compound into a fatal future. So these may be relevant warnings for us from the Old Testament, Haggai and Nehemiah, that transcend time. Like there's a way that you could neglect God's house in that day. There's a way we can neg neglect God's house in our day and the funding of the ministry. And we see that translate from Old Testament to New Testament. But is our response then to take up the tithe, to take up the first fruits offering, to start practicing the offerings of the festivals, etc.? Is that our marching orders as the church today? Those answers from the Old Testament, are we to take that forward and apply it now? The answer to that question is found in exploring how we Christians are to relate to the law of the Old Testament in general. What did Jesus say about the law in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? He says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Meaning, I didn't come to do away with the law in the sense that it has no value. The law is good. It was from God. There's truth in the law. There, there is righteous behaviors in the law. I didn't come to abolish it and say, oh, it has no value whatsoever. I've come to clarify it and show you its true meaning. And I've come to fulfill it. I've come to live it. Jesus was the only human being who ever lived who fulfilled all of the laws of the Old Testament, who lived a perfect life. And that became the basis for him to be a perfect sacrifice upon the cross, the all-sufficient sacrifice that we talked about in the book of Hebrews. So whereby he fulfilled everything that was in the law, 
and took upon himself the punishment that we deserve by not living into its standards. I mean, the Israelites did not give what was prescribed from generation to generation. He freed us from our debt to the law. And he granted us and gifted us a righteousness apart from it that comes through faith in him. So now, like it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, we are no longer under the law as if we could live into that in the first place, but we are empowered and under the grace of Jesus. But how does this clarify our relationship to what the Old Testament says? Well, it means that the spirit of the law, the spirit of the tithe, of this first fruits practice, of the festivals and all that, they all are still good. They still have instructional value for us. There's still spiritual principles in there that we can learn from, even as we do not observe them as a means of obtaining or keeping our righteousness before God, because that's derived from our faith in Jesus. If the law was still binding, I'd tell you to give everything I've outlined so far. I'd say, yes, you have to do the tithe, you have to do the first fruits, you have to do the festivals, etc., and you have to do the other 613 commands that are in the Old Testament. So is there something wrong with those who observe the tithe who are Christians today? Absolutely not. You don't have to think there's anything wrong with people who give 10% of their income. In fact, if you look at the statistics of the church, they represent the extreme end of generosity in our community. They may be giving much more than the average person in the community. So from one perspective... If you think about those who are giving 10%, man, that is a model, that is an example that we should emulate and aspire to because realistically speaking, the vast majority of us are giving significantly less than that amount. But those who observe it, the tithe can also fall into an error if they feel that rule is binding for all. Or if they feel that, oh, because I give this 10% that's according to the law, now I'm free to do whatever I want with the 90%. Well, if you want to justify yourself and make yourself feel very self-important by giving 10% because that's the law, well, then why don't you take it the whole way and give 30 or 40% like it's actually prescribed in the law, and then you can add on the 613 commands, and that's a long way and a difficult road to find out that you cannot earn or merit your own salvation. So to clarify, I'm not teaching the tithe is binding. And I disagree with any church that teaches the tithe is binding as the standard of Christian giving. I don't get it. I don't get how you selectively pick that part of the law and make it binding for Christians today and say, oh, just this one piece God ordained for us. I mean, I get that Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth, and so that predates the law. But the first fruits principle predates the law between Cain and Abel. There's all these principles throughout all of the scriptures. If you want to follow the law, you better be willing to uphold the whole law and then face the consequences when you can't. But what do we give? What are we supposed to give, guys? I've only told you what not to give for the last 30 minutes. A lot of you guys are going... What in the world did I just waste my time for? This is the worst message on money I've ever heard. I know less now than I did at the beginning of this message. Look, let, let's get down to brass tacks. We know we cannot serve both God and money. If you hoard, you're a fool. If you share, you're laying hold of the life that is truly life. As in the Old Testament tithe, we need to learn to revere God in our hearts, to train them to acknowledge our provision comes from Him, not just what we see, 
by giving regularly. As with the first fruits, we need to offer him the first and best of what we have, not our leftovers. As we saw in Haggai and Nehemiah, it's impossible to flourish personally and corporately if we prioritize our house and hold God's in neglect. So we fund the ministry. So we fund the ministry. You understand that Jesus was funded in his ministry endeavors. Specifically in Luke 8, verse 3, there's an exceptional band of women that are named who are some of the primary funders of Jesus' ministry. And it was no different for Paul. You know, Paul was funded at different times by churches and individuals, and he taught in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, those who preach the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Many make much of the season where Paul made tents to provide for his means to keep doing his ministry work as if that was like the glorious pinnacle of how it's supposed to be. But that was the exception in Paul's life. It was not the rule, and it is not what he taught as a standard for other people. As with the book of Acts, when the church exploded in growth, what also preceded and accompanied that growth? Radical generosity. And if in the year 2023, there's going to be this massive missionary movement, we're sending missionaries out to the entire world, don't you know that that's also going to come along with an explosion of generosity that's going to fund those missionaries? Let's just be real about this. If there's going to be a church planting movement that's planting churches all across the nation, there's going to be a large group of people funding that church planting movement so that it happens. And if there's going to be a thriving church established here in Huntington Beach, there's going to be a group of people who've said, what I've got I didn't just get for myself, it's been given to me, and I'm going to give it back. That thriving church, that missionary movement, that church planting across the nation, it may happen with that generosity, or it won't, because if people choose to store up and prioritize their own house instead. Realistically, when it comes to branches, we'll run on whatever's given, but we do have some challenges ahead. When we went into COVID, there was a dramatic drop in our finances. And so we cut back everything we possibly could. One of the things we cut back was our church planting fund. We cut back the growth of giving toward our ministry partners. As we came back together, as expenses started to increase, we never rebuilt those funds. They're still unfunded to this day. Inflation has eroded the wages of our staff team, so much so that many of our staff are seeking or are going about secondary employment, and some of them probably don't have a long future ahead of them just sustaining themselves in ministry. Now, if we adapt to the changing climate and we pay what's appropriate, not to make anyone rich, but just so they can sustain themselves... The resources are the same that are coming in right now. That means cutting other staff members so that we can sustain those that are going to remain. And when we look at the practical space that we're in right now, we are out of space. Last weekend, 160 kids in those classrooms. Second service had 100 by itself. That is a VBS. And that is an amazing thing, unless you're one of the leaders in one of those rooms. That's a lot of little people in a little room. And we're already getting past the point where we're turning people away from checking their kids into our gatherings. You can't see it, but across the street at the warehouse, 
you know, there's over 50 youth who are gathering in our youth group now. It was 10. It was 15 for a decade. Now it's 50. Now it can be upwards of 60. There is something beautiful and amazing happening in this church that is defying all the statistics that you would see of America. What are we going to do with that? Are we going to put a lid on that? Because we say, oh, we don't have the resources. Where we're going to go is going to cost so much more. What future do we choose together? It is our choice together. The role of the elders is the same no matter what. As an elder myself, I'm responsible, number one, to be a Christian. I am responsible to, you know, follow this message and apply it for myself, to give. And every single one of the elders is charged with that. But I can't answer everything that I just described. I can't take on my responsibility and then go, okay, it's fixed. I wish I had the means. I don't, guys. You can't do it either, but we can. If we all take up that responsibility, we'll move into that future together. But the elders can't determine that. We can't say, okay, we're just going to do this. Whatever comes in, whether a little or a lot, our job is the same, to honor God to the utmost with whatever comes in. But I sure would love to see us harness this opportunity to both expand this work, empower the people who are here, and see a movement of church planning go beyond Orange County. But at the end of the day, I don't have a law or a fixed rule to give you. I'm not a hepped-up, egotistical, manipulating dictator of a pastor. And I have to clarify that because there are many of those out there who are going to tell you exactly what to do and get in your business. This message doesn't end with me telling you what to give, but it's the beginning to empower you with truth so that you and I can go into prayer before God and have Him lead us. Last week it was this simple. This is God's truth. Are you storing up or are you sharing? And this week, Haggai said twice, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Ask God. And here's some questions that I want you to bring into prayer. Ask God, has the regularity of my giving taught me to revere you? This is what you ask God in prayer. You don't ask me. I'm not, I can't tell you the answer to that. We've encountered God's truth. It leads us to prayer. God, has the regularity of my giving taught me to revere you? Do I understand that the energy that I have, the very life that I have is not my own, but it's yours? And I don't just say it, I believe it. It's from my heart because I practice acknowledging that you're truly above and behind it all. I mean, you can fool yourself and think, man, if, if I wasn't born in this time in history and if I wasn't born in this country, I'd still work super hard and get the same net worth. Really? I mean, there are forces way beyond your control that you were born at this time in history, that you're born in this country, that you have the opportunities that you have to have been given what you have. And what are you doing with it? Is it teaching you to revere God in your heart beyond what you do? In prayer, ask God, is my giving to you out of my first and best, or is it from the leftovers? Is my giving to you, God, from my first and best, or is it from my leftovers? A really simple way to think about this is from the budgeting analogy. Do you budget your whole life and you figure out all your expenses and then you see what you've got at the very end and you say, okay, I could give a little bit here. 
Or is giving to God where you start? And you say, I'm committing God, my first and my best. This is it. Now let me build my life. Now let me figure out where the rest goes. That's the shift. That's the difference. And finally, is my giving prioritizing your house, God, or just my own? What a poignant question here in Orange County where a house is just about one of the greatest idols that many people have. So in a literal way, is my giving prioritizing your house, God, or just my own? And from a metaphor, is it all going toward me? Or am I seeing your work in the ministry in the world? Let's ask the Lord these questions in prayer. Would you join me in prayer this morning? And God, I just thank you. I thank you that though uh, you know, these are sobering truths and they face us with ourselves and we get a mirror held up to us, we enter into prayer. We enter into these questions empowered by your grace, by a righteousness that is not of the law, but of our faith in what you accomplished, Jesus. There's one thing that the Bible tells us again and again. The Israelites, they could not measure up. They did not match the standards of the law. They were not that generous. They didn't have your view of money. And all of us fall short, God. None of us is coming into this. We're the expert. God, we all need you to realign our understanding of our resources. We all need your help to promote generosity through our life, to have a kingdom perspective, to see more than what our hands can do and what we think we earn by our own strength. So Lord, I thank you for your grace that allows us to to hear your truth, to face your truth, and for ourselves, no one looking over our shoulder, just in an honest conversation with you. How can you lead us to prioritize you more? How can you lead us to be more concerned with your house than our own? How can we have our hearts trained to revere you through the action of giving. Lord, what do you want to mold in us? How do you want to shape our hearts? God, what freedom there is. When we do it in our own strength, we store up, but we have little. We fill our purse, we fill our bank account, but it's like it has holes in it. It's never enough. But God, with you as the priority, now we see our abundance. Now we see the blessing. Now we are storing up true wealth on into eternity. We're doing something that matters and that's going to have this ripple effect of personal consequence, our faith being strengthened, our, our treasure being aligned with where our heart is in you, God, in your kingdom, and the ripple effects going out into the community, into Huntington Beach and beyond. Lord, that's what you're opening us up into. Would you inspire? Would you cultivate that generosity? Lord, guide us to place our treasure where our heart is and that our heart would be with you.